0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, we know Biden will be better than Trump on climate policy because a poke in the eye with a stick would be better. That media are celebrating the inclusion of scientists throughout the government shows how very low the bar has been set. The disasters of climate disruption have next to no relationship to what corporate media tell us is feasible to address them. That's the starting point of a conversation on how to move forward with Basav Sen, director of the Climate Justice Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Also on the show, you could find the news in business papers like the Wall Street Journal, industry organs like Broadband Breakfast, and court watchers like Blog, But a quick survey suggests that the Supreme Court case on whether media concentration means women and people of color will be forever shut out of media ownership is of no particular interest to major news media. Some of the same media, who find a racial reckoning around every corner, can't seem to connect the dots to Prometheus Radio Project versus FCC, in which the public interest agency defends its efforts to undermine diversity goals. We'll get an update from Hannah Sassman, former organizer with Prometheus, now policy director at Movement Alliance Project. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. Papers across the country carried the news that Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is stepping away from the CEO role. Readers of stories like AP's February third report heard, once again, the story of Hal Bezos having quickly determined that an online bookstore would resonate with consumers, took that idea and built it into a shopping and entertainment behemoth. How what started in a Seattle garage is now one of the world's most valuable companies, worth some $1.7 trillion, and swelling Bezos' own riches along the way. We learned also that Bezos will soon have more time for side projects one of which is the Washington Post. Now, there's a mention toward the end of this AP report of calls for greater regulation, but you could read the story with a magnifying glass and never find a hint of the concurrent major news story that the Federal Trade Commission had to force Amazon to pay some $62 million for stealing tips from their delivery drivers. Nearly a third of their tips over a two-year period, according to FTC chair Rohit Chopra. As reported in Vice and elsewhere, Amazon advertised that independent contractors who deliver packages in its Flex program would receive, no, not health care benefits or sick pay, don't talk crazy, but 100% of the tips they earned on top of an $18 to $25 hourly rate. But right away, the FTC found Amazon quietly changed course, slashing payments to drivers and cutting into their tips to make it appear as though it was still paying that promised hourly rate. The drivers who complained got cookie-cutter emails falsely claiming that Amazon was still paying them 100% of tips— right up until the company learned that the FTC was on to them. Now, media reported this story, though, as Alan McLeod noted at Mint Priest News, headlines talked about allegations when the story is about an FTC ruling and about Amazon withholding tips when what they did was steal them. Media reported the story, But by making this wage theft and deception, besides Amazon's tax avoidance, dangerous workplaces and union busting, a separate story on a separate page from that of Wonderboy Bezos and the company that could, well, corporate media are going out of their way to protect the narrative of the self-made magnate. His ungodly profits earnestly come by and to resist what might be the natural tendency of readers to put what Bezos calls his Amazon winnings in the context of broader societal costs. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. The fact that a national newspaper felt obliged to tell readers that the Paris Climate Agreement has nothing to do with people of Paris, as GOP politicians suggest, tells you something about the caliber of U.S. environmental debate. The fact that media reports on Ted Cruz's tweet that Biden's rejoining the accord shows he's more interested in the views of the citizens of Paris than in the jobs of the citizens of Pittsburgh, elected to put objections to that nonsense in the mouths of Democrats like the mayor of Pittsburgh, well, that tells you something about how corporate media can report a debate without exactly advancing it. What would it look like to compare Biden's climate policy not to whatever numbskull thing Republicans say, but to what's necessary to mitigate the damage already underway and to adapt our industry and economy appropriately? Joining us now to talk about that is Basav Sen, director of the Climate Justice Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. He joins us now by phone from Maryland. Welcome back to Counterspin, Basav
1: Sen. Thank you for having me on here,
0: Janine. Well, we spoke with you in 2019 after Trump had pulled the U.S. from the Paris Accord to the great consternation of U.S. media who were convinced that the world still craves U.S. leadership. There was talk at that time in Congress about a bill to force the U.S. to rejoin the Accord. And I remember Winona Halder from Food and Water Watch saying... The terms of the Paris Accord aren't low-hanging fruit. They're fruit that has fallen to the ground and begun to rot. <laughs> you know, It's not all that Biden has done on the climate front. But what, first off, do you make of rejoining the Paris Accord? Is that symbolic or substantive?
1: So the more substantive part of it is rejoining the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC for short, process. And that is not merely symbolic. That is actually substantive because it means the United States is literally back in the room negotiating with the rest of the world on addressing climate change, a process that Trump had walked out of. Now, the bigger question, of course, is what the United States does once it enters that room. And that is a much bigger question. But I would say that at least re-entering the room is an essential first step. On that point, I do applaud the Biden administration for rejoining the Paris Climate Accord and the UNFCCC process. Now, having said that, I would now go on to address, you know, what would the United States do in that room? And if the U.S. were to behave the way it has done before in these negotiations, then it would be going back to the failed policies of the past. The United States has been obstructionist in chief in global climate talks by, for instance, refusing to accept the principle that wealthy countries who have disproportionately benefited from industrialization driven by fossil fuels and therefore are both much wealthier than much of the global South, you know, countries in Africa and Latin America and parts of Asia and the Pacific, but also are much more responsible for the cumulative greenhouse gas emissions for the last more than 100 years. And uh, the cumulative emissions do matter for the simple scientific reason that some greenhouse gases, particularly carbon dioxide, are just very chemically stable and long lived. So if you're emitting excess CO2 into the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels, it just stays there. It doesn't decay rapidly. And so the cumulative emissions do matter, and therefore the wealthy countries which have been industrialized for a long time and which have been responsible for a disproportionate share of those emissions also share a disproportionate amount of the blame for climate change. And for those two reasons, the fact that, number one, they are more responsible for the damage and, number two, they can afford to pay for the damage, means that they owe the Global South for the effects of climate change. They owe the Global South to be able to transition their economies away from fossil fuels and to adapt to the effects of climate change that are already occurring. And the United States has been a roadblock against accepting this principle and committing the level of funding that is needed for the global South to address the climate crisis. And the U.S has also adamantly opposed binding global agreement, which is you know one of the main reasons why we ended up with the toothless, non-binding Paris Accord in which countries make voluntary commitments to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And obviously, we need a mandatory global agreement to deal with crisis on this level. You know, it wasn't the United States alone. There have been other countries like Saudi Arabia and Australia and a number of others who've also been obstructionists at the global level. But as I mentioned earlier, the United States, because of its power and its economic clout, has been obstructionist in chief. So if the U.S. goes back into the room and goes back into those behaviors, those essentially bullying modes of negotiating, where instead of working cooperatively with the rest of the world in finding a solution, the U.S. tries to dictate what the rest of the world can do and threaten to walk away if other countries don't accede to those demands, then that would not be helpful. So the next step is to ensure that the United States actually acts as a responsible partner in these negotiations.
0: Well, let me just ask you, because one of the themes that's coming out from what you've said in terms of media is the way that media sort of separate the science story of climate disruption and the political story of climate disruption or of addressing it. And to the extent that they talk about it as a, of course, it's a political story because it's about power. But big U.S. media's way of talking about it is usually through this narrow partisan frame, you know, that goes from like the the 48 to the 52 yard line, and every claim has a counterclaim, and it really doesn't matter what the reality is, you know. And that's kind of deemed practical as a focus because, well, if you can't get changes through Congress, they aren't going to happen. But I wanted to ask you about the fact that political shifts on the order that are necessary, they don't necessarily happen within congress they don't necessarily happen within legislative policy you know there are other arenas for folks who want change on this issue to push for it you know so i'm trying to connect what you've just said about it's what the us does and not simply sitting down at the table well what the us does has something to do with public protest and public pressure you know and so i guess i just wanted to ask you Is Congress the only place where action happens? Is that the preeminent arena? When folks care about these issues, what other spaces should we be thinking about for action?
1: You know, that's an excellent question. Yes, ultimately, if the United States were to agree to a binding global treaty, it would still need to be ratified by Congress. So on a very instrumental and immediate level, yes, Congress is the body that will or will not agree to joining a binding treaty. But if we confine the narrative only to what seems politically realistic in today's Congress, we are completely missing centuries of history and lessons from social movements Because what social movements do is they redefine what is politically possible. No one would have thought before the civil rights movement that an end to segregation and Jim Crow was possible. Uh, No one would have thought since the start of the Industrial Revolution and before unions started organizing that Workers in these horrible conditions would actually be able to band together and demand their rights. So social movement's role is to redefine what is politically possible rather than to accept the narrative of, okay, this is all that is possible today. So obviously, yes, Congress today is, well, I wouldn't say it's completely unlikely to agree to a binding treaty, but I I can see that it will be a hard sell and it will be a very hard fight. But that's exactly where, you know, multi-pronged pressure from social movements comes in, in the form of everything from polite letters and emails to Congress people at one level to disruptive direct action on the other, and everything in between, you know, large demonstrations and media and social media and art and building a popular base by just educating and reaching more people about this issue. There's so many tools at the disposal of our movements to shift the narrative, to shift what is politically possible, and compel Congress to do what we want them to do rather than what they think they want to do today.
0: All right, then. We've been speaking with Basav Sen, Climate Justice Project Director at the Institute for Policy Studies. They're online at ips-dc.org. Thank you so much, Basav Sen, for joining us this week on Counterspin.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Janine.
0: A big part of modern media criticism involves illustrating the impact of corporate ownership and sponsorship on the media we see. Including the effect of concentration of ownership, more and more radio and TV stations in fewer and fewer hands, in devastating local media and narrowing the range of voices and perspectives media reflect overall. If the influence of media's mega corporate control is evident in branch and leaf, the hidden soil, as it were, is the policy that determines who gets to own outlets. A conversation about representation or diversity can only go so far without hitting that bedrock. That recognition is part of what's behind Prometheus Radio Project versus FCC, in which the federal agency tasked with protecting the public interest once again asks the court for support in jettisoning it. Here to no doubt put a finer point on it is Hannah Sassaman, a former organizer with Prometheus Radio Project. She's now policy director at Movement Alliance Project, also a party to this Supreme Court case. She joins us by phone from Philadelphia. Welcome back to Counterspin, Hannah Sassaman. Thank you so much. Well, listeners know that media owners have been fighting for decades to get rid of the rules that restricted their ability to grow to a certain share of the market or to own multiple outlets in one city. And they've had some success, unfortunately, with a pretty captured FCC. What is the FCC trying to do here? And have they come up with some new argument this time around? Or is it the same kind of trust in the market and all will be well?
2: Sure, that's a, a great question. So if you go all the way back to 1996, under the then Bill Clinton Federal Communications Commission and Congress, there was a law that was passed called the Telecom Act of 1996. And that went in and said, all right, in markets and media markets all over the country, whether you live in Rochester, New York, or Tulsa, Oklahoma, or San Antonio, Texas. We're going to make it so just a handful of companies, like maybe one newspaper, for example, could own both that local daily paper as well as a handful of radio stations, a television station. And that's the process, as, as you just described, of media consolidation, meaning that we have fewer and fewer owners owning outlets. Now, the commission under that Telecom Act of 96 is required to analyze whether or not relaxing media ownership impacts the number of women's voices, women's owned stations and the number of minority-owned stations, so black and brown stations around the country or outlets around the country. Now, what the FCC has not done is actually its homework. So every four years, they go around and, and they say that they've looked around and examined ownership, and they say, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Letting companies own more stations, own more outlets in these markets won't impact that racial and gender diversity. But then, groups like mine, groups like Prometheus Radio, um, and other organizations around the country, like represented by truly dogged public interest lawyers, said, hold up, you haven't done your work, you haven't actually proven that it hasn't hurt these markets. And it's just absolutely evident if you go around the country that we've seen the impacts of consolidation as it's already progressed on squashing diverse voices and really lifting up primarily conservative ones. If you, if you take a look, for example, at Sinclair Broadcasting, which is one of the largest owners of broadcast television outlets in the United States, those are companies that literally were promoting during this pandemic – conspiracy theories. They were taking rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration and creating editorial content and distributing it and parroting it around the country. So that was absolutely a really major cause in an America where 90 percent of our community listens to um, broadcast media at least every week. It's not just all online. It was a major cause of the polarization that's led to some of the biggest Upsets in American democracy that we've ever seen. So the Prometheus versus the FCC case was decided multiple times in what's called the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, where Prometheus is headquartered, where my organization, Movement Alliance Project, is headquartered, and the court said yes. We don't think the FCC has done its homework, and it's gone back and told the FCC to actually show this time whether or not it impacted the diversity it is required to protect. And so the government appealed that decision to the Supreme Court. We had our arguments just, you know, a couple weeks ago, and we'll wait to see what the Supreme Court decides. That's where we're at.
0: The Third Circuit court, in fact, said the FCC's methodology was so flawed and, quote, so insubstantial that it would receive a failing grade in any introductory statistics class, close quote. You know, so it's like they don't even bother, really. They just show up and say market, 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 market. And, you know, or outdated rules you know, now we have the internet. And some folks will find that persuasive. So I kind of wanted to lift up something that you mentioned about why it matters, because I think we'll hear this, you know, even on the progressive side, people will say, Oh, you know, one outlet owning, you know, two TV stations and the radio station, and maybe the newspaper in a market. That sounds bad. But we have the internet. So really, we have a lot of choices. Speak to that a little bit, if you would.
2: Sure, I'm happy to speak to that. So, here in Philadelphia, just as an example, this is the poorest big city in the United States. So, we have more people in poverty and in deep poverty than any other big city per capita in the country. So what that means is, is that we also have the second worst broadband penetration, right, of any large city in the United States. And that's relatively stunning. If you, if you like, I could go out in the street right now outside my house and look east and I would literally see the headquarters of Comcast, right, the biggest telecommunications company in the United States. I would see it like from, from about 30 blocks away. It's that tall. It dominates the city, this massive tower, two towers they have actually. So even in their own hometown, because of poverty, because they have these high-priced services that are really difficult to get to people when they can't afford them, we have this entire population that simply doesn't have regular access to the Internet. And they struggle for even to have mobile device access too. And so what that means is, is that broadcast outlets, Independent, culturally relevant, trusted local sources are the way, especially, especially in this pandemic, in this economic crisis, that communities of historic Black residents, homeowners who have lived in, in Philadelphia for generations, a growing, vibrant set of immigrant communities from Cambodia to the Puebla region of Mexico. These are communities that absolutely rely on trusted sources that speak in their context to transmit literally vital health information. So if we're taking a look right now, for example, at the utterly chaotic transmission of vaccine information in cities like Philadelphia. The fact that even in poor neighborhoods where local pharmacies are stocking vaccines specifically to try to serve folks who are eligible in those underserved populations, we still see higher income, mostly white people accessing those vaccines. That is in point of why an independent, vibrant local media system that uses the appropriate technology to actually reach people, whether that be radio, television, print, trusted community sources, we're seeing the failure in real time. So it's absolutely imperative that the Supreme Court listen to the arguments that came from all of these plaintiffs together, from all of these parties together, and we're hopeful that the arguments that were presented to the Supreme Court really take the current moment that we're in in into sharp relief. It's just as important now as it was in 1996, and it's deeply relevant to the uncertain times we're facing.
0: We've been speaking with Hannah Sassaman, Policy Director at Movement Alliance Project, online at movementalliance.org. Her article, How Media Consolidation Paved the Way for Right Wing Insurrection, can be found on inthesetimes.com. Hannah Sassaman, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
2: Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you.
0: And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.